Hebrews chapter 4, and let's begin in verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray together. Lord, we just thank you for the, the supremacy of your word and how you are so good to restore and to save and to help. And you're so merciful and kind. You're so wonderful in every way. And we want to be further fashioned according to your grace and your image, Lord. We want, we want to be made more like Christ. So we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to become more holy through this passage by your spirit, Lord. We know there's so many different directions you could take our hearts related to these verses, and you can make such wonderful application uniquely to each one of us. So we, we yield our hearts to you, Lord. We want to come before your word in humility and surrender, being surrendered, Lord, before you. Whatever you want to speak to us about, Lord, whatever you want to encourage us about, whatever you want to say to us, we're here. We're your servants. We're listening. And we want to be doers of your word, not just hearers only. So we pray that you'd set this time aside for your holy use as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. The writer of the book of Hebrews is speaking to Jewish believers who are severely struggling. Severely struggling. Because of increased persecution and possibly false doctrine with some of these false teachers coming in and tempting them away from the Lord Jesus. They're tempted to go back under the law. They're being tempted to try to earn a right standing before God by their works. And all of that is so inferior to what they already had in the Lord Jesus. And so the heart of all of what he's been saying to them uh, is Jesus is better, as we've seen. That's the theme. Jesus is better. And so they're being tempted in the face of this persecution to go back. And so what the writer by the Spirit's trying to do is trying to get their eyes on how big God is. He's trying to get them to see that God would back up his word. He's already told them that his grace is sufficient. He's already told them that his strength is made perfect in weakness, even in persecution. And the question they were asking in their hearts and in their minds was, is it worth it? Would it be worth it to stay true to the Lord, to hold fast their confession? No matter how they would be mistreated, no matter how they would be persecuted, would it be worth it in the end? It's a good question to ask ourselves. Is it going to be worth it in the end? When we stand before Jesus and give an account for our lives, those of us that know the Lord, when we're there and he's sifting through our, our ministries and our past and he's examining what our motives were and he's looking at why we did what we did or were we led by the Spirit. I mean, heaven and hell is already taken care of. That's all determined. That's not what that judgment's about. But it's about our stewardship related to our ministries and the motivation. It, will it be worth it? And I think it'll be worth it for sure. But the enemy comes in and tempts us away to try to say it's not worth it. 
that somehow we're being ripped off by following Christ, following hard after him. And wasn't that the original lie in the garden? God's holding out on you. There's something legitimate that you need that God isn't giving you. And, he's, and, and that was a challenge on God's word from the very beginning. And here are these Hebrew believers, these Jewish believers, they were being challenged somehow that they were missing out, that somehow something was being withheld from them that they needed related to being protected from persecution and they're tempted to go back. And so this writer is being so amazing by the Spirit showing that what they have is better compared to what uh, they, they were tempted to trade it in for. Jesus is a better revelation. Jesus is better than the prophets. Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than Joshua. We've seen it. He's laid out a masterful case, he's, and he's continuing. Two weeks ago, we looked at that Jesus is a better Sabbath. He offers a better rest. The forefathers of these Jewish believers, they, they, they never entered into God's rest, as we saw. They never entered into God's rest, the promised land. Why? Because they didn't believe what God said. Like God didn't know how amazingly tall and strong these people in Canaan were. He didn't know how difficult it would be in the, in far as the human perspective on how to defeat these people and take the land. He didn't know about any of that when he promised the land to them. But they were looking through the lens of what man can understand, what their own abilities were. They weren't looking at, looking at it through the lens of what God can do. And it was the same for these Jewish believers. They didn't believe that God could sustain them through persecution. They didn't believe it was worth it. They didn't believe that God would would follow through with what he said. And God took that very seriously in the in the uh, their history, the Jewish the Jewish history with them not believing him. He took that very personally and considered that rejection of him. They believed that bad report. It only would take 2 weeks to get from from Egypt to the promised land. That's all that's how long it takes to do that on foot, but because they believed that bad report and they did it willingly, every adult with age 20 and above would never enter into his rest. They would never see the promised land, save Joshua and Caleb. So for the Christian, we enter into God's rest. It's entirely different. It's not the promised land. That's not what God's aiming at for believers, but it's us ceasing from our works in believing what Jesus did for us on our behalf. And maybe you're here today and you've never received Christ yet. There's no way that you could ever be good enough to earn your way into a relationship with him. He did all the work. So you just have to receive it by faith. So we cease from our works, the works of trying to earn a right standing before God. But as we saw two weeks ago and even last week as we took our little detour into the abundant life and living you know, in victory, as Christians, that God sees the abundant life for us, and he, he, he kind of compares it to the promised land. And every, every time we don't claim a promise, every time we don't depend upon the Holy Spirit to, to do the work through our lives, every time that we don't believe God's word, we are robbing ourselves of the abundant life that God has for us. So we, we're supposed to enter into that rest. We do it salvation, but then there's walking in the fulfillment or the fullness of that rest. And that's why we saw Jesus say, come to me, you that are heavy laden or burdened down. I will give you rest for your souls. 
But yet God tells us to be very fruitful. And, and that ministry represents sacrifice. So how can those things go together? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's the one that gives us the strength and the power and the capacity to live this supernatural life because we can't do it in our own strength. Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so that is very important for us to see because Jesus said, I, I've come that they would have life and have it more abundantly. It's the thief that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And so all of us, God's called us to claim these promises, to walk in victory. Now this morning, the writer transitions to Jesus being a better high priest, and he's already touched on it a little bit. He's referenced him as uh, our, our high priest in the past, but he's going to touch on it a little bit more in our verses, and then almost entirely chapter 5 is about that, and then in chapter 7, he really gets into it even more. So this whole theme of Jesus being a better high priest is, is not a very a small issue in the mind of, of this writer. He knows it's very significant to these Jewish believers. And in part, it's because the, these Jews, these Jewish believers, their whole history and their whole past was so centered around everything that happens in the tabernacle and the temple. That was their, there was such a strong thing that they identified with. They loved that. And so this high priest, this whole idea of the high priest was very important to them. Again, I want to remind you that the temple at this point is still standing, has two or three years left before that, that Roman general Titus would come and, and they would conquer that uh, city and they would destroy the temple and so forth. So that's the context. You have to realize they're thinking that's, that's been their identity for all this time. And, and, you know, when you think about the early church, you know, they didn't meet in buildings until around the second century, sometime in the second century. They met in homes, mainly because of persecution, but there are other reasons as well. But they did not meet in, in nice buildings and, and, and so forth. So you have to picture the Jewish mind that had such an identification with that temple. For us Gentiles, it's hard for us to, to grasp that. We don't really have this strong identification with a, a Jewish temple. They had so much pride. I mean, look at the Jews today. When they go to that wailing wall and they're folding their little prayers and the little tiny pieces and they're pushing it through the cracks of that retaining wall, that they, that's such a holy wall and that wasn't even the temple. And, and they get in fights with the Palestinians all the time related to the Palestinian excavation of certain parts around the Temple Mount because it's, 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 it's a holy place. It's a holy mountain to them. So that was everything to them. And then you have the new Christians meeting in their homes. They're just meeting in their houses. And so the Jews are, are for sure putting kind of pressure on them and saying, look, look what, what we have. We have this temple. And we, I mean, even in Jesus's day, they were so impressed with it. And that's when he told them about how it wasn't going to be standing at some point. Well, that's about to happen in their history here. So it can kind of seem to these Jewish Christians, like, well, what do really we have? What do we really have to identify with this temple we were so identified with that now we're not as identified with it anymore all we have is we just meet in small little tiny groups and in in homes and comparatively speaking it doesn't look like there's really anything going on I mean that could be kind of how the enemy was working in their their lives surely through other people and so the thought could be you're leaving that temple for this in this living room here this I mean that's what you're willing to exchange 
for? Okay, well, you go ahead and have that and be happy. And so this, this writer's coming in and saying, that high priest is there in that temple, and he's impressive. But the Holy Spirit knew that that whole thing was going to end in just a few years. And, and it wasn't even legitimate at that time anyway. So, so this whole idea of the high priest. Now, the, the priesthood is God's idea. God set that up in the Old Testament. And a priest was supposed to represent the people to God and God to the people. He was like a mediator. There are many priests in, in, the, in the economy of Israel. But there, were, there was the high priest, and, and that was a very special place. These, were the, these priests were the sons of Levi, later the, I mean, the sons of Aaron, later the sons of Levi in that tribe. And so you have to know that context when you're looking at these verses. It'll really help. Now, I want you to notice in verse 14, he starts by saying, Seeing then that we have a, a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Now, first of all, the first word of the verse is the word seeing. And that asks, begs a question, how can he say seeing that we have such a high priest when they don't see him? They don't see him at all. They don't see Jesus. Where are they seeing Jesus? Why is he using this word? And I, I believe it's because he's just talked about God's word in verse 12. They see it all through the scriptures, the New Testament that they have. They see it in history. He's already come. And, and so it's already evident. It's not something that God isn't speaking about and hasn't spoken about and doesn't have the proficiency of his word that he says in verse 12, penetrating every part of who we are, revealing that Jesus is who he said he was. So they have a very clear picture of Jesus from God's word, and that's sufficient. But notice he also says there uh, in verse 14 that the Lord Jesus is a great high priest. That's noteworthy. No other place in Scripture is any high priest referred to as great. That's, that's, that's important for us to see. Aaron himself wasn't even called the great high priest or a great high priest. And just like all the things with which the, the writer compares Jesus, uh, it's important for us to see that Jesus is, is better in every single way and even including this position of high priest. And so what we're going to see in the rest of these verses and into next week and into chapter 7 and, and beyond, he's going to be revealing to us by the Spirit uh, why Jesus is a better high priest. All the things he says about Jesus being the high priest he's going to get into. He's, he's uh, a high priest in the order of Melchizedek and all these different things. It's all to show us that he's a better high priest. Very important for us to see that he's going to give us many reasons. But in these verses this morning, I want us to know that the main word that we need to understand related to what he's getting across to us is the word access. Very important for us to understand. There's a connection between the high priest and access. The Old Testament high priest had access and provided access. And, the, and Jesus obviously provides access. So we need to understand that that's what he's getting at in these verses. It'll help us understand uh, a lot of what the writer's getting at. Now, I want us to turn, hold your place here, turn over to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27. I want to sh to, for us to look in a fresh way where this access, where it all started. Matthew 27. just want us to read a couple verses here. 
Let's start reading in verse 50. Matthew 27, verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked and the rocks were split. Very important uh, that we see what happened here. God did something here. This was not any ordinary veil. This veil separated the holy place in the temple from the most holy place. We usually refer to it as the holy of holies. And that veil was very, very tall. It was very, very thick. It's been, it said in the Mishnah, the commentary on the Torah, he, it, it described as so big that it took 300 people, 300 priests, to handle it and to, to move it around. And they would change it out twice a year. It was, it was it's like the thick, as thick as your hand. It was super, it wasn't just like this little veil that we think of. It was a thick, thick curtain. And, and that, that curtain was, was very, very important because it showed that not just anybody could come into the presence of God. And that high priest was the only one that could go in there. But when this veil was rent from top to bottom, it was communicating that God was doing something. That's why it happened from top to bottom. And what he was communicating is, is that this whole thing, this whole system that I set up, it's not like he didn't set it up. He's the one that set it up. This whole system is over. The priesthood ended at this moment. It completely stopped as far as God was concerned. Now, there were 15 high priests to come into power subsequent to this moment. But there was, it was all a sham. It was all illegitimate as far as God was concerned. When he rent that veil from top to bottom, he was saying, total access. Access. You have access to me. And that's very important for us to see because Jesus is the one that accomplished that. He's the one that cried out, it is finished. And on that cross, all of what happened was fulfilled that he had predicted. And, and now this whole way that we can approach God had changed now. We didn't have to go through people anymore. And it's sad today when you see people going through different religious leaders, whether they be priests or popes or, or whoever else. It's not just limited to Catholicism. There's, there's plenty of that in, in Protestantism, unfortunately. You have to go through a man to get to God. But Paul wrote to Timothy and said, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. That started, and the access of it, what started at when that temple was, was torn in two. God always wanted intimacy with man. And sin is what got in the way of that. So when God finally took care of that sin issue through the cross, then we were allowed to have that total access. Now you can turn back to our passage. I want you to notice also in verse 14 that we're told our high priest, Jesus, passed through the heavens. I don't know if you caught that in the verse. It says he passed through the heavens. It's, it's passed over all the time, that little phrase, passed through the heavens. And it's, it's easy to miss it, but it's very significant. In the Old Testament, the high priest had the most access than anyone else. You know, sometimes you go to concerts. I remember I went to a Franklin Graham crusade in Northern Ireland with the School of Ministry. It was a missions trip. And we were um, teasing some of the guys on the team because... Every night they got more access. 
They got these lanyards that had more, you know, they could get to places that we couldn't get. And they were making us, letting us know that we couldn't get to these areas, that they were allowed to go. They were doing security in certain areas. And so we were saying it didn't matter to us, but it did matter to us, of course. And uh, so by the last night, they had mercy on us and they got promoted all the way to like backstage access, all access. And we got to, to, to be along for the ride, so to speak, and actually stop someone that was the equivalent of Stephen Curtis Chapman in their culture, worship leader. And I, I stopped him because he didn't have a pass to get on the stage. He's like, do you know who I am? I'm like, no, I don't, but you don't have a pass. So you're the guy without the pass. That's, what you, that's who you are right now. You're the guy without the pass. And he goes, no, you don't understand. So I, I found out who he was and was very embarrassed and realized I shouldn't have had that access because of those judgments, that, that judgment call that I had. But there's, we always want access, don't we? Don't we always want to get to be like the, on the inside, get the inside access? Now, we can't have any greater access in this world than having access to, to God himself and to heaven. But that's what this passage tells us we have. But in the Old Testament, it was the whole function of the priests and the high priest was predicated upon the whole uh, principle of access. The whole, the whole layout of the tabernacle and the whole layout of the temple later that would come was completely founded upon access. Everything about it was access related to, to that. And especially on the Day of Atonement, it was the case. Because that high priest would, would offer that sacrifice. You know, and during the temple, there was the, the, the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women, the court of the men, the holy place, and the most holy place. And that, that sacrifice was done out far away, and then he could pass through all those areas depending on who he was, or anybody could, right? But the people couldn't go past the court, the women couldn't go past the court of the women, the men couldn't go, they'd go further, but they couldn't go any further than the court of the men, and they couldn't go in the holy place, that's only for the priests. And then only the, the high priest could go into the most holy place, and he could only go in there one time a year. And he could only go in after he had sacrificed a, a sacrifice for himself, for his own sins. So we're talking very limited access here. And, and these Jews knew all about this. To us, we have to be educated. They knew all about it. It was like they could, they could recite it to you. They could tell you all, everything you need to know about how that access worked. So when he says he passed through the heavens, the Lord Jesus, that gets my attention because he's talking about access that no high priest ever had. You talk about the third heaven as the heaven of heavens. You know, Paul talks about the third heaven. He, was, he knows a man in Christ that was caught up to the third heaven. People always ask what, what those heavens are, and it's our atmosphere is the first heaven. The second heaven is, is you know, space, the final frontier. And then, then there's the heaven of heavens where, where, where God resides and, and Paul, most people believe it was Paul, caught, was caught up to the third heaven. He wasn't allowed to see anything. So maybe, could we always assume he saw things and just mentioned there was inexpressible things that he heard that he wouldn't be lawful to speak. But it very well could be that God didn't allow him to see anything. That he didn't even see one thing. He could only listen. But even that wouldn't have been lawful for him to share. So that's an incredible place to think about. And, and how much greater is our high priest that he didn't just pass through the different parts of the tabernacle or the temple he passed through the heavens all the way to heaven itself jesus is a better high priest he has better access and and he and he passed through things that are greater did you know that the tabernacle and the temple were copies i don't know if you knew that 
copies. They were, they were, that God laid it all out for them to, to Moses to build this in a way that it is a picture of what the real sanctuary is in heaven. Hold your place here. Just turn over to chapter 8 in Hebrews. I want to, I want to, we're going to be covering this. This is almost like coming attractions here. Um, <laughs> chapter 8. I want us to see this for ourselves here. Let's begin in verse 1. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the, of the sanctuary, look at that, the, the sanctuary, and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. In other words, this, this isn't one that Moses put together. This is the Lord himself made this. For every high priest, verse 3, is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. In other words, free will offerings and required offerings. Therefore, it is necessary that this one, that is Jesus, also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy, notice that word copy, and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Now you can turn back to Hebrews chapter 4. The high priest in, in their context, in their thinking, these Jewish believers, the historical high priest, he had access and he passed through these different courts all the way to the Holy of Holies and that was great. But what he was passing through was just a copy. It was just the, the copy that was based on something that was real in heaven. Jesus passed through the heavens to the, the, the sanctuary that, this, that the copy that we know of, the tabernacle and the temple, was based. So that's another way that the Lord Jesus is a better high priest because he has better access, but his, the access that he has is to something that's greater than what the high priest ever could dream of having. Can you imagine those high priests if you could tell them back in that day that they could go into the very sanctuary that the tabernacle was based on? How, what they would do, how, how thankful they would be if they were allowed to do that. It would be absolutely amazing for them. But there's more. I feel like an infomercial. But wait, there's more. Uh, notice back in Hebrews 4 that the Lord Jesus has a superior name. He says there, Jesus, the Son of God. There's only 16 times or 16 verses in the epistles where Jesus is referred to as the son of God and this is one of them and Jesus means Jehovah is salvation and the son of God speaks of his divinity and his deity and so no high priest Aaron himself the you know whoever you could look to for the high priest could never say that they were the son of God could never say that they were God's uh, Messiah sent to this world to pay that full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of mankind's sins. No high priest could ever say that. So not only does he have better access to, to a superior sanctuary, but he's also God himself. No high priest could ever 
say that they were God, they were God himself, of course. And so the writer's just saying, and you want to go back to this? You want to go back to the way that God had set things up that all pointed to the fulfillment that you already are walking in? Why would you do that? That doesn't make any sense. But he gives us another way Jesus is a better high priest. If you can even imagine that we would need more. There's more. But wait, there's more. He sympathizes with us. Look with me at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. I love that he acknowledges that we're weak. He just says it. He's, assume, he's assuming that that's the case, that he can, he can sympathize with our weaknesses. You're a weak people, he says, and we know that. If we're honest with ourselves, we will say, yes, we're weak, that we need him in every way. It's interesting that word sympathize means to suffer alongside. Have you ever seen those movies where maybe, let's just say Rocky, for instance. A few of us have probably seen Rocky, you know, yo, Adrian. Uh, and so he's training and he's running along the road, you know, and someone's in a car. I don't know why they're always in a car. Why aren't they running next to him? That'd be even more encouraging. But they're always going next to them and they're, they're training alongside and they're, it's encouraging the people that are training to have someone train and go through the same thing that they're going through. And that's, that's the, kind of the idea here. This word uh, sympathize is, is the word pathos, which means to have a feeling, a strong feeling of suffering. And then it's linked with a preposition soon, which means alongside. And so the ancient Greeks they, they believed that God was apathetic towards man, that, that God didn't have any feeling, apathetic, apatheo. So they, they thought God was, was, because he was superior, he couldn't have feeling. And if someone provoked God to have feeling, then that meant that they were greater than God because you have to be greater to provoke something in someone. And that was a totally different picture than the reality of, of who God is. Christ, because he's our high priest, he can sympathize. He can suffer alongside of us because he's walked where we've walked. You know, in our day, we hear a lot of tragedies that occur in uh, different places. And sometimes we hear these tragedies that happen in, at schools, you know, and different terrorist attacks and things that happen abroad in these different places. And I want you to imagine if you uh, heard two years after you graduated from high school, Let's say that you're 20 years old and you hear of a terrorist attack, like a bombing that occurred in a rival high school in your city, and that would bother you. But now imagine if it happened at your very school that you graduated from. It would be totally different. It would mean something entirely different to you because you had been there. You'd experienced what they experienced. You knew those people. You had gone through the things that they had gone through. You could identify with them because you had already been there. That's the idea. The Lord Jesus can sympathize with us because he's already been here. He's gone through everything that we go through. And so he has incredible, incredible sympathy and empathy for us. Christ was severely tempted while on this earth. I believe it started before he was tempted in the wilderness after, it became, after he was baptized, when the Spirit led him. I can't imagine the enemy not tempting him while he was a child, all the way, you know, he never sinned. And so the enemy hates everybody. Obviously, he doesn't show any partiality. 
So I'm sure he dealt with temptation before that, but in his public ministry, the Spirit himself led him away to be tempted. And then I believe it didn't stop there. I believe he was tempted after that as well. And so he knew everything about what we go through. That's why I notice he says, in all points. Now it's hard for us to believe that because we believe in the doctrine of impeccability that believes that, that Jesus could not have sinned because he's God. God can't sin. And sometimes we think that that takes away from how we can identify with him because we experience temptation in a way where we could actually follow through with it. So how can God relate to me if he could have never sinned? But think about the fact that because he couldn't sin, the amount of temptation and the amount of, of temptation that was poured out on him and, and the intensity of it because of who he was. And because what he dealt with and, and the extent to which he was a servant in this world. And all the, I mean, obviously when you're fruitful, you're tempted. And who is more fruitful than the Lord Jesus? So Jesus doesn't have to have the potential to sin, to identify with temptation and, and how the difficulty of, of dealing with that. He was, that's why he says in the word, the word all there, in all points, he was tempted. He couldn't sin but he could be severely, severely tempted. And so that's important for us to see. But he says, notice at the end of verse 15, yet without sin. No high priest could say that. No high priest could say what Jesus said in his public ministry. Who among you convicts me of sin? And as it's been said, there was silence then and there's silence today about that very same question. Nobody can legitimately point to any sin that Jesus ever committed. So a high priest could somewhat relate in a sense of, you know, he knows what the sins are. I mean, there's, he's, he's making the sacrifices and all of that, but he hasn't dealt with the totality of what mankind deals with. No high priest could say, I've been tempted in all points that humanity deals with, but Jesus can say that. And, and he can also say, I, I know what it's like to be victorious every single time because I never sinned. But he doesn't stop there. And there he really gets to the, the heart of everything, as I mentioned, the, the, where the word access really comes into play in verse 16. He says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We don't really relate to thrones very well, because we don't have them. That, you know, in our country, we don't have, I mean, some, in some churches you may see a few fancy chairs up on the stage that we refer to as thrones up there where the leaders sit and we jokingly say, you know, those are thrones. Um, but, you know, in our government, we don't have really thrones. We could go up to a, to a judge and he's sitting at his bench and that's kind of maybe the closest that we could possibly get. But in, but in their day, they were very familiar with thrones because monarchies were very um, common. And what a throne meant was what it, rep, what it symbolized was unapproachability, and it, and it usually meant uh, justice and judgment. That's what a throne meant. Now, for the Jewish throne, it's a little bit different, or because the picture is still the tabernacle or the temple with the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant there with the mercy seat, and that was the place that God dwelt. And, and, and that was where his presence was. That's where he spoke to Moses, saying, this is for the place from which I'll speak to you. And so forth. That was, the, that was the throne of God, so to speak, is on that mercy seat, the presence of God theirs. And, and, and it was called a mercy seat because God was still 
merciful, obviously, by setting up the whole sacrificial system so that even through that inferior way compared to what we have, it was still a way that they could have a relationship with God uh, and be able to relate to God. But for the average person, they could never see that place. The average Jewish person could never go inside the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest, even the other priest couldn't go, couldn't look behind it, couldn't have anything to do with the other side of that veil. Only that high priest once a year. And it's been said that they tied ropes to their ankles, you know, those high priests, because if something happened to them, they couldn't get them out because they couldn't go in there. Very important. So here these Jews would know exactly what that meant when he says, come boldly to the throne of grace. The word boldly there has to do with speaking. It's, It's saying speak boldly or don't hold anything back. You ever had someone in your life that's very blunt? Sometimes that can be a blessing. Sometimes that could be not so much of a blessing. But that's the idea here. Come bluntly. That's kind of a better word. Come bluntly in speaking your needs that Jesus can identify with before the throne of grace. And it is a throne of grace. That's comforting. The purpose of the throne of grace is to give and, and, and give out and help people with mercy and grace. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. You do bad things and you should get punished for it. When someone extends mercy, you don't get the thing that you should get because you've been bad. And then grace is getting good things that you don't deserve. You don't deserve certain good things, but you get them anyway. That's what salvation is all about. And so the only reason that God calls us to his throne in speaking things in prayer, that's the context, boldly and bluntly before him is for us to approach him because he wants to bless us. He wants to extend mercy and he wants to extend grace. And one of the things we can forget when we look at these verses is that the reason why it's a throne of grace is because our great high priest is there. That's what makes it a throne of grace because he can relate to what we've gone through. Because he has been tempted in all ways, yet without sin. Because he's walked the path that we're on. He's, he's been in our shoes, so to speak. And we're told in the Gospel of John that Jesus is full of grace and truth. That's the reason why it's a throne room of grace. It's because he's there and he's gracious and merciful. There is a problem, though, with some of us at times. We live as if that throne room or that throne is anything but a throne of grace because we relate to God differently than what God wants us and how God wants us to relate to him. We mentally agree that it might be a throne of grace, but we live in such a way to where we're acting as if we believe it's a throne of judgment and it's a throne of works. So what we think is, oh, I'm not going to come to God. I'm not going to, you know, bring my needs before him and, and so forth because I don't have my act together. How many of us have done that? Let's just be brutally honest. How many of us have done that? I'm not going to talk to God because I don't have my act together. The encouraging thing for us to see is, is that that makes no sense in light of what kind of throne this is. It's like when I share with unbelievers when they think that they have to do all these works and get their act together before they receive Christ. And I say, that's just like you trying to get clean before you get in the shower. Right outside the shower, you're trying to get all clean on your own when you're supposed to just get in the shower to get clean. So God says, if you wait to, to get your act together before you come before my throne in prayer to see, speak these things bluntly and boldly before me, 
then you're never going to get the mercy and grace that I want to extend to you because I want to extend those things to you as you approach me in prayer. But we say, no, my, I, you know, I haven't been doing that well. I've only had, you know, four-hour devotions. I haven't had eight-hour devotions today. So I don't think I can come before you. I don't think that I've been perfect in, you know, in all these things. And God says, just come. And we always, it's always helpful for us to relate all these things back to how we are with our children. We always want to be around our children. We want them to come, especially when they're little. We're sitting in our chair, our grandkids. We want them to come up on our lap. Why? Because we want to be close to them. And do we want them, do we not want them to become, come on our lap when they've been bad or they've been, you know, we want them, we know that if they come on our lap, that we can help them not be as bad. That's the thing. But if they waited until they were good before they came on our lap, we could never help them. Give them the counsel, give them the encouragement, give them the prayer that is so much better given when they're close to us and on our laps. It's a beautiful picture. It's a perfect picture because that's what God is saying here. He wants to give us grace. He wants to give us mercy in our time of need. Remember, the context is temptation. Of course, there's other weaknesses that we have. And of course, he wants us to come to him boldly with those things as well because Jesus didn't just experience temptation. He experienced incredible weakness in many different ways when he was in this public ministry. So we experienced a lot more things in this life that relate to us besides sin, dealing with temptation. So there's all kinds of things, but the main context is temptation. And God always gives us a way of escape. I want us to read, or me read, you listen, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, where we're told this, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape. There's, a, there's the word the there, the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. So he, he always gives us a way of escape when we're tempted. What that does is, is it gives our, our, our uh, we want to pass the buck and we want to blame shift and say that we had no choice and we're, you know, victims. And, and God says, no, 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 you're not victim. You have a way of escape. If you if you look for it, you'll see the way of escape that I'm providing. And so so often that comes through us by prayer, aggressively, boldly expressing our weakness to the Lord. How many of us have been tempted? We sense we don't have the, the capacity to obey God, and we pray right then, Lord, give me the power to obey you right now. Give me the strength. Give me what I need to, to, to please you right now with my life and with my mind and with my heart. And he does it every time. That's the main way of escape about which he's speaking to come boldly into that throne room of grace and receive mercy and grace for the moment in temptation. You can't get any more precise with the meaning of our verses than dealing with the weakness of temptation. Now, if you had an invitation to the White House and all the resources that was, in, was involved in the executive branch and this government, if you had an invitation, think about it. I'd want an invitation. I'd, I'd, I'd go. There's some, some things I'd like to discuss there. Um, uh, there's many things that we could talk about. Um, but let's say you had an invitation and you had all the resources of the White House behind you, but you just, you weren't too into it. <laughs> you know, you just didn't want to go. Well, that would be foolish because you wouldn't be taking advantage of resources that have been given to you. But how much greater is the throne of God than the White House? So much greater. And we have so much resources that we need to take advantage of. God is saying to these people and us this, I know your struggles, know all about them. 
Come boldly in prayer. You have access now. I went through a lot to provide you with the access that you need. You don't have to go through any man anymore. Just come directly to me. You don't need a mediator. Let me graciously help you. I'll give you mercy. I'll give you grace. I'll give you everything you need. Just come and come boldly and come often. That's what God's saying to us. Are you struggling today with sin? Are you struggling? Are you weak? Are you having a hard time? We all do. That's, that's kind of what describes our daily walk, is struggle. If you're not struggling, then there's something going on that isn't representing reality in your life because we all struggle every single day. We're supposed to take up our cross daily and, and follow him. It's important for us to come regularly and boldly. There is one part of these verses that I left out on purpose because I wanted to save it to the end. And it's the, the end of verse 14 where he said, Hold fast our confession. You thought, some of you thought I missed that, which I'm not above missing, but this time I didn't. The whole thing about what these Hebrew believers are dealing with is holding fast to their confession that Jesus is who he is and not going back. It was never about sin directly. God knows they sin every day, just like we do. It was about them holding fast to their confession all the way. We've already read it. It's already said, he's already said it two different ways. If we hold fast our confession all the way to the end, it's called persevering in your faith. You are, you are holding fast in faith of what God has said all the way to the end of your, your, your last breath. And that's what he's telling. We have to hold fast our confession. And one of the reasons why, one of the many, 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 many reasons why we should hold fast that confession is that Jesus is a high priest. And he's not just any high priest. He's a great high priest who's passed through the heavens and who's thought of everything, who is sitting on a throne that's based on grace and mercy for our lives. That's supposed to change everything in our walk. That's supposed to hold, help us say, you know what, no matter what I go through in life, no matter what temptations come, no matter what persecution comes my way, I'm going to hold fast to my confession because all the resources of heaven are available to me if I'll just appropriate them. That's a good word for us today. Hold fast your confession. Stand. Stand in the faith. Stand where you're, where you're at. Hold your ground. It's all in the context of spiritual warfare that he says, stand therefore. You know, after you put on the whole armor of God, stand in that day. That's what he's calling us to do. Stand fast, hold our confession, and that only happens by coming to him boldly because he's a very merciful and sympathizing high priest. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that your, your word is spirit and it's truth and it's life. Thank you that it's eternal, that it outlived the heavens and the earth. And pray, Lord, that you would encourage us to go to you because you're a loving father. You're worthy of our faith. You're worthy of our perseverance. I pray that you would encourage any that are, that are here that sense that they're living a defeated life, I pray, Lord, you'd encourage them that they can come to you and that they shouldn't try to do all of this in their own strength because you haven't set it up that way. Remind us, Lord, all of us, myself included, to ask for your power, to go to you in prayer, to go into that throne room and ask you for grace and mercy when we need it so we can live a life that looks like you, Jesus. You're worthy of that. Help us as a family to encourage one another in that and to be there for one another. Thank you for the privilege of this, 
this passage washing over our lives and hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.